Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. It's coming up to the end of 2021, and I have all these emails in my inbox that I want to answer because it's um, always been a goal of mine on this podcast to answer every single email, (laughs) which back in the day was possible and now is... I think possible. Well, well, let's see. I think the key is is that I have to go very fast. I have to answer not in my normal, long-winded, yammering fashion. So let's see if I can manage that. This first email is from patron Jeremiah. He writes, How do you handle conversations when people are misusing clinical definitions such as gaslighting or narcissist? I'm a new patron and have greatly appreciated your insight on these commonly misused clinical terms. I have recently noticed that my wife is is using terms such as narcissist and gaslighting to describe people who are mistreating her. I am a therapist and have seen real cases of gaslighting and narcissism, and while my wife's mistreatment is real, it is not gaslighting and the people do not have narcissistic personality disorder. She will often ask what I think and will get angry and feel invalidated when I explain that her mistreatment is distressing. I don't believe she is being gaslit or dealing with narcissistic personality disorder individuals. End of email. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've talked about this a lot. I'll probably talk about it again at some point. But the other uh, phrase that is often misused is love bombing. So we have gaslighting. And they're often used on the same people. You know, that person was, that person gaslit me. They love bombed me. And they were a narcissist. They're a malignant narcissist or whatever it is. And how do we, how do you handle conversations? Well, I think that uh, the first thing I can say is that listen to all my episodes on gaslighting, on narcissism, on love bombing, because it's pretty nuanced and I go into detail on how I think words change, definitions change, um, is that okay, is it not okay, you know, there's arguments you can make on the other side. I, I would prefer if we don't change the definition of gaslighting or love bombing because they're pretty solid, useful terms, and if we just completely uh, smear that word across various different other definitions, it kind of loses its meaning, and we have to invent new words, I suppose. The other thing I'll say is the word narcissist has never been a clinical term. It's just a label that people, lay people, provide, like that person is self-centered, or that person's stuck up, or that person doesn't have empathy, seemingly, or that person is inconsiderate. These are not diagnoses. These are not clinical terms. It's just an observation. It's a judgment call that you're making. So, uh, but when people are on the internet talking about, you know, he's a narcissist, there is a ring of clinical, um, you know, power that people are using. If they said he is arrogant, then most people would say, oh, well, you're just making a judgment call. But if you say he's a narcissist, then typically people will Google what that means and they look up the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and they're like, yes, 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 yes. When even clinicians, as I've talked about, research finds have difficulty conceptualizing or assessing people with narcissistic personality disorder. It's a very difficult thing to assess and it's very complicated. I've done full deep dives on it. But anyway, so the other thing is, is that when you're talking to someone like your wife, uh, she probably is coming from an echo chamber of uh, people supporting her. You know, there's a lot of people who are suffering, and they go to the internet often for support or answers. And there sometimes is an echo chamber of people, whether it's good or bad, that will help them. And there's a certain language that 
certain echo chambers will use. And there's an echo chamber online of people who have been hurt by partners. I think it's usually hurt by men. And there are there's language around gaslighting, around love bombing, and uh, around narcissist. And it feels good. You know, you're hurt. You're like, what happened? How come that person mistreated me? I don't understand. You go on the internet and they provide answers. The problem is, is that they are using clinical terms in dubious ways. Sometimes it's probably accurate. You know, it's, it's not like people aren't mistreated by gaslighting, narcissistic love bombers, but the terms, as we've talked about in previous episodes, get get thrown around in some really just haphazard way. And I, you know, I I support people's pain. I support people's identification that they've been mistreated, but I don't support people uh, acting like they understand psychological terms by Googling it, you know? So um, when you, Jeremiah, interact with your wife, you know, she's emerging from uh, an echo chamber and for you to just say, well, actually, you weren't gaslit. Well, you're operating from a completely different definition of gaslighting than they are. And so to her, she's like, yes, I was gaslit, and here's how I was gaslit. But when you hear, you know, one of the things you can say, Jeremiah, is like, you know, so when you say you were gaslit, can you tell me what you mean by that? And typically, you know, what they'll say is, well, you know, he he tried to make it seem like it was my fault. And you're like, oh, that's your definition of gaslighting? Because that's not my definition of gaslighting. And that's fine if that's how you want to define gaslighting. But that's not the clinical definition of gaslighting. I see. So according to your definition, yes, you were gaslit. Or you're calling him a narcissist. What what do you mean by that? Well, you know, he was completely inconsiderate. And he didn't have any empathy. He didn't show any empathy anyway. And he was totally focused on his own needs and not mine and didn't care about my feelings. Oh, okay. That's what you mean by narcissist. Okay. Well, that's not necessarily narcissistic personality disorder. What you're, what you're talking about is according to your observation, it seemed like he was really self-centered. I see. Okay. Well then, yeah, I guess that person, according to your definition is a narcissist, that kind of thing. Um, so, and I, I emphasize the echo chamber part of this because it's kind of a movement online and to that I've realized over time. And I don't know if this was true in the past where uh, it seems relatively new where people are realizing there's this vast sea of language and psychology that they can just sort of cherry pick and use and, and, and bastardize, you know, these terms. And it feels, I think, I think maybe what's happening is there's a general cultural movement in the Western world, perhaps other places around the world, of realizing that psychology is a thing that's useful to people. And as people start to utilize psychology and psychotherapy and self-help and, you know, mindfulness and, you know, all sorts of trauma recovery, people are starting to realize, oh, Psychology is kind of cool. Psychology is kind of nice. Psychology is kind of useful. Psychology can explain a lot of things about what's happening to me. And it's the blind leading the blind on, on the Internet. And then you have these uh, movements and these manifestations of what I'm going to call bastardization or, or distortion of certain terms and, and utilizing terms in ways that are not uh, clinically sound. And, um, and so I think it's, it's a ma- I think it's a sign of something that overall is good that society is heading more towards psychology but you know there's going to be some problems and you know is is it a problem is it a huge problem you know back in the day uh, and you still kind of hear it people will say oh my god i'm so schizophrenic one day i'm like this and the other day i'm like that 
I don't know if people say that anymore, but people say that all the time uh, up until, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. And that is not the definition of schizophrenia. <laughs> it's not a definition of anything in the DSM where you change, you know, from day to day in terms of your preferences. But people would say, oh, my God, I'm so schizophrenic. One day I like to go to the beach and the other day I like to go on a hike. I'm so schizophrenic. And is that a problem? Is It obviously doesn't respect schizophrenia and people who suffer from it are being harmed. You know, you'll hear me rail about people saying, oh, my God, I'm so OCD. I like things being clean. It's like, no, you're not OCD. OCD is one of the most debilitating disorders you could ever experience. You're just clean or you're organized or anal or just just say that. Just say, oh, my God, I'm so anal. Why, why do you have to say you're OCD? Like, knock it off. So on one level, it's like not great. But on the other level, it's like, do I do we really need to like die on this hill of like, you will not use gaslighting in the wrong way? You know, it's like, I don't know. I just feel like there's more important things like climate change to fight against or something. Um, but I, I find that this movement is uh, it's so powerful. And I think overall a good thing because it supports people who have been harmed. And it's similar to the incel movement, which of course I've talked about many times before over the last number of years. And I think the incel echo chamber is worse than the gaslighting echo chamber because it produces, you know, misogynistic murderers online, literally. But I think it's a similar thing. You have people of various genders who are hurt and they're going online looking for an explanation. And depending on your gender or your cultural pocket, you'll uh, be tempted to fall into either the incel MGTOW community, at, you know, where it blames feminism and other kinds of things, or you fall into the gaslighting narcissist love bombing echo chamber, which I, I, in my estimation is much less toxic than the incel community for sure. But it's still a, a distorted community of these people are pathological. There's nothing wrong with you. You didn't do anything wrong. Instead of, wow, it sounds like a really rough time that you went through. We can't diagnose your partner at all, and you probably can't either unless you get professionals to help you out. But we can know that you're hurt and you're not doing well and you deserve support and you deserve to be treated better. And, and hopefully you can find a better partner for you in the future. Uh, you know, that's all good, but that's not what people do. They're like, oh, my God, that that's a narcissist. You know, there's this compulsion. And I see it on comments regarding 90 day fiance as well. You know, I make these reaction videos and people diagnose the people on the show like frequently. And I can diagnose people. Of course, I, I can't ethically diagnose from afar, but I have the ability to, you know, diagnose people. And I can tell you that watching a reality TV show does not give me enough information to diagnose them. <laughs> it just doesn't. And yet people, lay people are just diagnosing left and right. And so, you know, it's a similar thing in, so but anyway, you're saying, how do you handle conversations, I, Jeremiah? I, I think what you do is you focus on what, if she's your wife and she's been mistreated in the past and you want to support that, you want to empathize with that. And then, you know, maybe say, hey, so you're using the word gaslighting in an interesting way. And I, I don't know if you want me to mansplain to you about that, but if you're ever interested in, in the clinical definition of gaslighting, I'd be happy to, uh, you know, talk about that, you know, just because it's like, do you really need to ruin your marriage over such a thing? <laughs> it's up to you. Okay. This next email is from listener Kayla from Rhode Island. She says, 
Can you talk more on your experience teaching sex ed? I heard on your recent podcast that you taught sex ed for a little while. I'm super interested in teaching and improving sex, sex education. I'm beginning grad school to earn my MSW. Could you talk more on how you became involved in sex education? Did you have, did you have to get any specialized training? Did you need an educated, did you, did you need an education degree? And could you also talk about your experiences? Do you see any hope for more comprehensive and nuanced sex education in public schools? End of email. Okay, so I'm trying to go fast, so I'm going to go fast. Um, I taught sex ed to ninth graders for, I don't know, maybe 10 years or something. And it was, uh, well, I'm going into the nuanced, boring details, but I, I taught sex ed to ninth graders. And I was given the job because I was the only person on staff that had the closest qualifications, even though technically I, I, if I were to apply, you know, if a school were to hire a sex educator, I would not qualify because I, I don't have specialized training. I never have. It's, it's not a, it's not a focus of mine, but I, I know enough about it and I knew more than the other teachers at the school. And so uh, I I was just given that job, and then over time, I you know I learned on the job because <laughs> a lot of sex ed. So there's two prongs to learning about sex ed. One is is all the knowledge, all the anatomy, all the cultural discussions, the um, you know understanding what ninth graders are going through, development, sexism, sex shaming, body shaming. You know, just understanding all those things and, and sexual traumas. You know. Um, so that's one thing, just learning a lot, which I, I, I knew a lot about the psychological side about it, I, and I knew a little bit about the anatomy, but not a lot. And really, you don't, you don't need to know a ton about anatomy to teach sex ed, especially because often in schools, they give you a curriculum and you just have to follow it. But, but the other prong of understanding how to teach sex ed is understanding what you can't really learn in a book. You have to experience on the job, which is... How do you communicate to ninth graders? How do you how do you react to their reaction? How do you set up an environment that's safe for them to learn and to ask questions? And and how do you how do you meet them where they're at? Because you know some ninth graders are active sexually, and some ninth graders are years from being sexually active. So and ninth grader and I'm talking about ninth graders in particular because that's who I taught, and that's often when you really start and at least in the United States in my experience uh, really get down to business regarding sex ed you know certainly you have sex ed at you know sixth grade or fourth grade or something but I, I feel like ninth grade is when society starts saying look they're gonna start having sex soon and some of them are already having sex so we got to get on this stuff anyway so you have to tailor it you know because some kids are already having sex and some kids are like some ninth graders are are very immature along those lines. There's nothing wrong with that, but they're 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 like, huh, sex? Like I, I don't even I've never even kissed a person. I, I've I, I, that's not even on my radar yet. Um, and then of course in um, this discussion, there are kids in ninth grade who are asexual, but they don't know it, or they're bisexual and they don't know it, or they're trans and they kind of know it, but they don't know how to talk about it yet. You know, so. Sex ed involves so many different things, and um, so I would set out, Kayla, to learn those two things. Uh, different schools will have different qualifications, So, and of course, private schools have 
you know, wide variety of different qualifications. So uh, there's that. So Kayla, I would reach out to, you know, you're in Rhode Island. So your state and school districts probably have their own particular um, policies. I would reach out to the district and, and then reach out to actual sex educators who are doing the job that you want to do. And I would say, how did you get here? What qualifications should you have? Other questions you ask, uh, did I have any specialized training? Not really. Um, I mean, although I, I, I have taken a fair amount of cor- graduate courses on sexuality. Did you, and I oversaw, I was the boss of teachers who taught sexuality. <laughs> um, but uh, on the scale of things, um, my my sort of individual knowledge of, especially anatomy, is is pretty laughable. And, and it was actually pretty funny when I would teach um sex ed because you know i'd follow a curriculum but and i you know it was pretty elementary stuff and it was stuff that i remembered learning when i was in ninth grade but every once you know at the end there's always a q a right and so they would the kids would ask questions and a lot of the times i would just have to go off my own personal experience <laughs> i wouldn't say it that way but i'd be like hmm, i don't know the stats on that but i think it's about this because of my own life and and so that was a little funny little uh, experience for me. Um, the, the other thing I'll talk about is uh, parents, right? And that's changing and every community is different. But uh, so I've talked about this before, but briefly, there were three different groups of people. Well, there were, oh, God, there's, there's so much to say. But basically, there's three different groups of people you have to politically work with. There's the students, there's the teachers and the administration, and then there's the parents. And at first, when I first started teaching sex ed, I thought the parents would be the ones who would be the most um, uh, uptight and most scared of sex ed. And what I found was parents, very few parents were uptight about me because I would um, go to an assembly of, not an assembly, uh, a parent meeting. The parents would come to the school and I would stand up and say, I'm in charge of sex ed and here's how we're going to do it. And very rarely would teachers come up with concerns. If anything, they just came up and said, thanks for doing this. I I, I hope that you teach my kid things because I think my kid needs to learn things. Surprisingly, the pushback came from teachers. The teachers, in my experience, it was just that particular school I was at, were very uptight and the administration was very uptight. And I'm like, why are you so uptight? And uh, the... There were two reasons why I think that was. One was that the teachers had experienced a lot of pushback from parents on various different topics and were paranoid about getting in trouble with the parents. And whereas I didn't really care because if I got fired from this job, I didn't care. I was just like, I've got other gigs in my life. I don't need this job. And so it, it was never I was never afraid of anything. I was always like, well, and. If something happens, something happens, I don't really care. But the teachers, you know, their whole life kind of depends on being liked by the parents year to year. And so I think there was that. The other thing is I found a lot of the teachers to be extremely sexually repressed. <laughs> and, I mean, I, the, the things that they would say as we were talking about, you know, the curriculum. that it, Like one of the things that I would try to introduce that the kids actually really wanted to talk about was, how to make a decision about sex, like when to have sex and and how long should you wait to have sex. This was like 90% of what the ninth graders were concerned about. They they knew about STIs. They knew about pregnancies. I mean, that wasn't mind-blowing. And there were some details that were 
you know, that needed to be combed through about like ejaculation or you know, whatever. There's just little things that they just didn't know about. But, you know, they knew the broad strokes, um, excuse the pun. Uh, but the thing that they were really concerned about was how long do I wait? You know, I have a boyfriend right now. Should we be having sex or should I wait six? Is it okay if I have sex with them? Should should I get on the pill? Should I? My parents are a little. Should I talk? You know, this sort of ground level decision making that ninth graders, uh, you know, I'd say about half of them were, you know, contemplating. And so I would introduce those kinds of uh, modules of how do you make a decision? It would be a discussion. You know, they're like, okay, who who wants to talk about this side? Who wants to talk about that side? And we just have a discussion about that. The teacher shut that down. And I did I did this for many years, and and I don't know if like five years into this module, the teachers are like, you know, they caught wind of it, and they're just like, no, no, you can't do that. I'm like, why? They're like, well, you can't ta- you can't be seen as um, endorsing these uh, ninth graders having sex with each other, and I'm like, uh, I'm not endorsing it. <laughs> they're they don't need me to endorse it or not endorse it. They're either going to do it or they're not going to, there's nothing about me bringing it up. That's going to change it. What me bringing it up allows at least one adult to guide them on decision-making on, on how to take care of themselves on how to uh, know, know that they have the right to say no. And they also have the right to say yes. If they want to say yes, it's okay. It's okay. If they're having sex, as long as everyone's, um, consenting and you take proper precautions, there's nothing wrong with them having sex. But the teachers were just like, you cannot uh, be having that conversation. And so it, it, it morphed over time. Actually, it might have been more like 15 years. Anyway, it was a long time. But there were many twists and turns. There were, t- there were years where I was basically allowed to do whatever I wanted to, and the, and the kids loved it. And, and it was this fun, interactive, really kind of mind-blowing Uh, And I was always very impressed by the kids. The kids would, you know, you think they'd be all like snickering and dick jokes and stuff, but I I would be really impressed with them. And then the teachers would push back for a few years and it would completely be reduced to this um, curriculum that was completely based on scare tactics and STIs. It was all about AIDS and herpes and syphilis and crabs and, you know, unwanted pregnancies and, you know, date rape, you know, it was just all, of course, those things should be discussed. And we always did discuss those things. But there were years when that was all I could talk about. <laughs> it was like, okay, it's sex ed, which is basically just all the all the diseases that you could get if you have sex. So I guess that's all we're going to talk about in sex education, you know. And I would get these kind of blank looks from the kids like, is this all we're going to talk about? Because this isn't what we're thinking about, you know, anyway. So, and then of course, you know, all the other things I was talking about earlier about bisexuality or homosexuality or asexuality or demisexuality or internet porn or masturbation or, you know, the kinds of things that kids are and ninth graders are absolutely thinking about many of them. So Kayla, I I would, um, get ready for that nonsense because <laughs> you you got to work politically with the different groups. Um, let's see. Do you see any hope for more comprehensive and nuanced sex education in public schools? Yeah, I mean, some schools, uh, it's, it's all about leadership, you know, and schools can vary uh, and districts can vary. 
So you could go to one school and find a, a super comprehensive, relaxed uh, sex education program. You could walk down the street and go to a different school and have a completely different experience. It's all about uh, leadership. It, it, it's all about because there's no like mandate from, at least from what I understand, federally or state government wise that makes people do a, a a particular level of sex education. I think there are guidelines. I know there are guidelines put forth by public health. That you know, at, at times that we would follow that we would follow the the public health curriculum. But again, the teachers would make me focus on the scare tactics modules within that. Anyway, point is, is that um, there's a lot of uh, variability and um, some schools are doing excellent jobs. Some, some schools are, are really doing a lot and and kids need so much information. We uh, It would be, and you know, with all the things on the Internet that they're fighting against and some anyway, point is, is. You know, let me know how it goes, Caleb. All right, I need to go faster because <laughs> I am not going fast. Okay, uh, anonymous patron wrote in uh, a response to my response to her ha- having been involved in sex work. She, I don't know if you remember this recent email of anonymous patron talking about how she dipped into sex work for a little while and found that uh, she didn't like it and she didn't like the customers. She she was really repulsed and, and it seemed like they just wanted a sexual object that, that was really upsetting to her. And so she, but then she asked another question. My boyfriend doesn't know I did sex work while we were long distance before I moved. How do you feel about the ethics of this? I mean, is it cheating even though I was repulsed by them? I feel like my boyfriend might leave me if I tell him after all these months, but I wish I could tell him because I hate keeping secrets from him. Thanks for reading. If there is a God, you're doing their work. <laughs> um, well, the ethics it depends on how you think he would react. If If you think he would be upset, and if you think that he thought you were in an exclusive, because, you know, I think most people would consider sex work to be a, a violation of a sexual exclusive relationship. So if you violated that expectation or even that, you know, discussion that you had, then it was wrong. It's morally wrong to do something that's going to harm someone without letting them, you, you know, you could have told him, okay, I know we're, I think in an exclusive relationship, but I, I'm thinking about going to sex work for a while. How do you feel about that? Uh, you could have had that conversation beforehand. You weren't, um, you know, handcuffed in that way. Uh, and you chose not to uh, either because you thought he would be okay with it, which, you know, if you had good reason to believe that, then that's fine. But if you thought, well, he's not going to react well to this, then that's not okay. There's a possibility he won't care. There's a pretty good possibility he would care. Now, the other part of this is, we've talked about this with Bob, is do you tell him or do you not? You know, are you telling him because that's to benefit him or are you telling him because you want to benefit you? And now that it's done, and is what would he say? Would he, would he want you to tell him? Would he benefit from you telling him? You know, it, it's, there's a lot of debate there and there's no easy answer. Of course, the solution would be to get in a time machine and go back in time and tell yourself, look, before you do this, talk about this with your boyfriend and consider the effect it's going to have on your boyfriend because once this happens, there's no way to come back from that, right? So, because right now you're stuck in this, you know, best case scenario, 
you tell him and he's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, that's okay. So that's best case scenario. But that's not likely to happen. You know, there's so many other possibilities. One is, is that you tell him and he is devastated, not only by you, but by women in general. It's just like, I can't believe that I fell in love with someone that had this completely different, you know, sexual life behind my back. I mean, how do I trust? I thought she was uh, being exclusive and, and was, uh, loyal to me i wait she was having sex with random people for money like that would really mess with someone's head potentially i don't know you know if but so there's that scenario or you don't tell him and you sit with that festering secret and say you were with him the rest of your life and you just have to never tell him about this or you don't tell him and he finds out somehow and then he's devastated by that like uh, this all could have been avoided if you would have just told, asked him if it's okay, you know, when you first start. Now, maybe when you first started out, you weren't very, uh, you know, serious. Your relationship wasn't that serious. And so you were like, well, I, I don't need to tell him about every little thing I'm doing, which, you know, it might be a circumstance. But anyway, let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron from Texas. She writes, I am the second child of 10 children and i was severely physically and sexually or sorry, sorry i was sorry i'm a sorry i am the second of 10 children and i was severely abused physically and emotionally by my dad as such i was abusive to my younger siblings i am now 27 and my younger siblings are 25 23 and 21 i am surprisingly very close to the 23 and 25 year olds they will joke with me about our childhood fights but the 21-year-old still harbors resentment towards me very understandably. He has made comments about having childhood trauma, but has never talked to me directly about it. I am now one semester away from graduating and becoming a therapist, but I feel like I'm a fraud since I since I traumatized my siblings and it has affected them into adulthood. I have gone through years of therapy, and I feel that I have left my past behind, but they have not. I have talked to them about starting therapy, but why would they listen to me when I am the source of their issues? I feel like a hypocrite and do not deserve to be in this career. Can you talk about sibling abuse? Why does it happen and what are the long-term effects? Can the abusive sibling ever fix what they've done? Okay, well, just to go really quickly, uh, anonymous patron from Texas, I'm really glad that you're able to understand what you did, which was wrong. You're, you also understand that it was you know, in all likelihood, because you were abused by your father and you were just uh, paying it forward, if you will. And that happens a lot, a lot more often than people, I think, care to realize that when you abuse children, the children often will abuse the younger children. It, it's just a thing that happens, whether it's physically, emotionally or sexually. And it doesn't excuse what you did, but it does highly contextualize it, you know, and your your questions here. So, you know, kudos to you for recognizing that. Kudos to you for trying to repair it. Um, you know, th those are all most abusers in your situation wouldn't do that. But one of the major things you're saying is you feel like a fraud. No, absolutely not. I mean, every therapist has done bad things. I've, I did bad things to my younger brother. I wouldn't call it abusive, but I've apologized to him. And he says he doesn't remember or he's fine with it. But I, I think any sibling group, particularly if you had a close enough relationship, uh, there's going to be some mistreatment in there. <laughs> there's going to be some stuff where the older sibling was 
occasionally a jerk face. Um, you know, there's a spectrum there, but that doesn't negate your validity as a therapist. In some ways it enhances it because you understand what it's like to be an abusive person. And we need much more awareness about what actual abusers are like. You understand what an abuser is like because you used to be one because in our, in our society and to some extent in my field, we have this um, very straw man view of what an abuser looks like that they're evil and sadistic and psychopathic. And certainly those people do exist, but the vast majority of people who commit abuse are not psychopathic sadists. They are people who are struggling. They're people who have been abused. They're people who have only one way of communicating their needs or something. And so we need a lot more awareness and understanding of why abuse, abusive people do abusive things instead of the ridiculous notions that are floating around in our culture. And, and so you have a, a huge skill and strength that you can really provide in that way. Then you ask, you know, what are, what are the long-term effects of sibling on sibling abuse? It's the same of any other kind of abuse. Um, to, to be abused by a sibling isn't necessarily any different from being abused by a parent or an uncle or something. Um, I mean, I suppose there's some nuances there, but generally speaking, you can experience the exact same PTSD and complex PTSD and, you know, schemas. Can the abusive sibling ever fix what they've done? You ask. And yeah, I mean, you want to, and it kind of sounds like you're hurting and suffering because your brother, younger brother, isn't forgiving you or he's not uh, trying to heal. And so he's suffering. Now he's 21. So he's at the beginning of his uh, adult years. And it usually takes a long time for people to reckon with what the path is forward. And so give him some time and you might just have to grieve the fact that he might not ever forgive you. And you might have to grieve the fact that he might not ever go to therapy. He might not ever try to recover from the abuse that you committed to him. You might have to grieve watching him self-destruct be partly because of the abuse that he went through with you. You know, he might become, uh, you know, have, suffer from substance abuse or have a string of terrible relationships or become violent or something himself. And you will say part of that is what because of what I did to him, possibly. And, you know, that might happen. And you don't have any control over that because he's the one in control of his recovery and his path of forgiveness and his path of reaching out to you. So, you know, I get that you would love for him to reach out and to start to heal. And so you could feel less ashamed, I suppose, but you don't have any control over that. You might just have to grieve that loss. All right, let's take a break. We get back more emails. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions 
I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. I thought we'd do an OPP, an old patron praise. These people became patrons in May of 2019, and not only did they become patrons, but they have remained patrons in a dedicated, loyal way ever since of May 2019. We got Rich, Richard from Berlin, uh, Deutschland, Germany. Does that we say Deutschland? Uh, Gerland from also Berlin, uh, uh, also from Germany. Jordan from Spokane, Washington, which is where my family is from. Peter from Toronto, Canada. Patricia from Sweden, Torslanda. Chris from God knows where. Melissa from Sherman Oaks, California. Jennifer from Seattle, Washington. Marilyn from Downey, California. Lily from Bright, Australia. Elizabeth from Amaus, Pennsylvania. Amaus, Amaus. Uh, Robert from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Danica from Dallas. Pretty sure... I've interacted with you. And, of course, Jessamy Flynn, who is an upper-tier patron who is a friend of mine. Thank you so much, Jessamy, for being a patron <laughs> and being my friend, and, and I hope you're doing well. And thank you to all you who have become patrons, particularly you people who became patrons in May of 2019. All right, this next email is from anonymous upper-tier patron. She writes, Would you talk about child-on-child sexual abuse? I have an extremely difficult time accepting my experience was valid enough to even be considered abuse because it doesn't fit the obvious things. We were the same age, it was female-on-female sexual abuse, and we were unrelated. And I could have stopped hanging out with her if I wanted to. I stopped seeing her in middle school, but I ran into her in our early 20s when I found out she was being sexually abused by her father. When I think about the experience I have absolute when I th- when I think about the experience I have absolutely nothing I have absolutely nothing but ex- but sympathy for her fury for her father and indifference for myself. Your podcast has given me several light bulb moments avoiding attachment particularly resonated with me and I have started therapy but can't convince myself to even bring the abuse up. Also, I identify as gay. This aspect of it makes me almost disgusted with myself, although I would never hold the same Standards if it was a male-on-female, child-on-child sexual abuse who both grew up to be heteros and the female. Yeah, so, you know, the key to abuse, and I want people to really understand this because I feel like it's lost in the din on the Internet, is the key to abuse is the experience of violation and or terror. When you feel violated, when you feel terrorized, when you feel coerced and tricked and manipulated, when you feel that way, it's abusive. There are probably other words I could add to that, but that's kind of the core. If you feel unsafe, if you feel like someone used you as a, as a thing and you feel like very, very objectified, then that's abusive. So... Yeah, you can be abused by someone younger than you. you know, let me give you an example. So I, I had a supervisee woman who had a, you know, she's an adult, I don't know, 30 years old in graduate school. And she had a client who was, I don't know, 15 years old. 
and was sexually compulsive and would comment on her breasts and on her body. So in this, and we talked about it a lot, and it was violating, and it's abusive. And we could go into the details as to how to deal with that as a therapist. And, you know, for the sake of time, I won't for now. There's a way to approach that. And there's also rights that you have as a therapist. It could be, I don't want to work with this kid. But in this instance, we have a thir- we have a 15-year-old boy who is sexually abusing a 30-year-old woman. That can happen. And it does happen. So age has nothing to do with it. Gender has nothing to do with it. The fact that you're unrelated, the fact that you still hung out with her really has nothing to do with it. I mean, the vast majority of relational abuse, relationships that involve abuse, the victim doesn't leave because of the reasons we understand to be very true to the, what it's like to be a victim. Um, so uh, the fact that it's female on female means nothing in terms of the validity of the abuse, the fact that you're the same age isn't a factor so we but we have this quintessential um i don't know platonic ideal of what a sexual abusive relationship looks like and anything that diverges from that we're like confused (laughs) like wait a woman can abuse a boy that doesn't make any sense i'm just like pull your heads out people like it's the experience of being victimized. That's what abuse is. If you feel victimized, then you're being abused. Now, there are times when someone feels victimized when most people would not feel victimized by that. You know, like you're in public and someone makes you wear a mask in a restaurant and you feel victimized by that. Uh, we could absolutely go, well, you know, you're interpreting that as a as an abusive thing. But... And we could take that context into consideration when we're passing laws or we're, you know, validating the victim's point of view. But it's, you know, it's under most circumstances, all we have to do is just be like, did you feel violated? Did you feel unsafe? Did you feel used? Did you feel terror? Did you feel, uh, do you have long lasting negative effects from that, from those experiences? And if the answer is yes, then it's like, yeah, then you were abused. Was it against the law? You know, it kind of depends on the situation. Would most people see it that way? I don't know. But that's all that it requires uh, for you to have long-standing negative effects, you know, if that's what we're talking about. You also bring up this idea of just that it's like, well, I'm gay, and so I, I, I don't even feel like I can talk about I feel I invalidate myself because I'm gay, and this was a same-age female-on-female relationship and I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. I, I don't know what you're saying anonymous upper patron precisely, but I, I've heard other gay people talk about this where there's this um, black and white thinking about gay relationships, same sex relationships in our society where there's a percentage of people who think that same sex relationships are disgusting and to be gay and to stand up and say, I was in a same sex relationship that actually was problematic it feels like you're siding with the enemy right but that's not that shouldn't invalidate your voice and it shouldn't invalidate your experience Um, we understand that same-sex relationships are fine we understand that the vast majority are non-abusive obviously but same-sex relationships gay relationships can be sexually abusive physically abusive emotionally abusive just in the same way that hetero relationships can be those things I don't think there's a higher prevalence of it, but it it 
it's, you know, it happens. And so you absolutely deserve to bring it up in therapy. You deserve to identify as a victim of sexual abuse. Um, now you say, well, she was abused by her father and I, I can see where she comes from because, you know, that's what she knew and she was acting it out. But that doesn't invalidate. You, you, you say you have sympathy for her and that's, that's good. You have fury for her father. That makes sense. But you have indifference for yourself. And I think that's where you really deserve to start working on things of you matter. When you're abused, you are made to feel like you don't matter. And then the abuser resides inside of you at that point. The, the abuser is telling you to shut up. The abuser is telling you you don't matter. The abuser is telling you don't even think about your emotions and your needs because you're, you're, you're not even a real person. And because when you're abused, you're being treated like a non-human. You're being treated like, a, like an object, like a thing, like a, like a bench or a chair or a table. That's the way you're being treated. And so you believe, oh, I am a bench. That's all that I am. I'm just a thing that people sit on and I don't matter. And so that's a huge part of your therapy. And I'm guessing you'll get to that. All right, next email. Come on, Kirk, you can go faster. Listener Esther from Canada says, I've been hearing a lot about the replication crisis in psychology and medicine. What are your thoughts on the replication crisis and has it affected the way you practice and teach? End of email. Uh, boy, well, if you don't know what the replication crisis is, in a very small nutshell, it is that in psychology, we have a lot of research that are trying to discover things about humans and behavior and about the mind and about the brain. And a lot of really seminal research findings that people believe to be foundational to our field, when we try to replicate the studies to confirm these findings, a lot of the time we find we can't replicate the findings. And a lot of our notions about psychology are either unprovable in within our current um, scientific abilities or they don't bear out when you actually replicate the studies. So there's this crisis of just like, well, uh, in the research world, but also in the broader psychological world, it's just like, well, are we a valid science? Do we have anything to say about anything? You know, what do we know? Do we know anything? You know, it, it becomes kind of a crisis. And, you know, that's that's an oversimplification. Of course, there are many things about human nature that we absolutely, you know, through consensus and a lot of replication of independent studies have confirmed. So it's not like we're completely lost in the woods. Um, it could be overstated, the replication crisis to some extent. Um, the other thing is, is um, very briefly, what I'll say is that although I absolutely appreciate research and will and have conducted it myself and read it, read research all the time and use it all the time in my teaching and in my practice and in the podcast, therapy and the human experience is much more of an art form than it is a science. The things that I do to help people are much more art form than it is following a prescriptive technique, right? And this has been a debated idea of psychology and psychotherapy for 150 years. There's always been this debate around, are we a science or are we a philosophy? Are we a hard science or are we an extremely soft, squishy science that is mainly concerned with 
uh, how to see things and wisdom. You know, the the best therapists that I know about are wise. They understand research and they use it. But the best therapists, the best teachers that I know are people that because of their experience, because of their uh, wisdom, because of their explorations, because of their creativity, because of their humanness, they have derived a point of view that is powerful for other people, not only in th- in therapy office, but also in the in the university classroom. And there's no theory that uh, guides them necessarily. There's no theory that guides their technique. They just they know how to help people. They know how to inspire people. They know how to teach people. They know how to um, move people towards getting their needs met. And certainly there are theories that will help us. And you know me, I'm an, I'm a theory nerd. I use it all the time, but even a lot of theories aren't super related to hard science. So, um, I, I think we need to, ex- and I'm not the first one to talk about this, but I, I think we're heading more into this desperation of making psychology a hard science, especially as like brain scientific resolution starts to uh, sharpen. We have the ability to, you know, look more closely at brain processes and which is good. It's good research, but it's reductionistic. It's it's often culturally problematic because, uh, um, you know, old white males will look at the data and interpret it in a patriarchal way uh, that there's a whole history of that. And then they'll say, and science has proven that da-da-da. Uh, like a classic example is the sexual selection uh, theories put forward by a lot of evolutionary psychologists that, you know, men evolved to spread their seed and women evolved to be very careful about their eggs. And it's just like, uh, when you actually look at the science around that, it's ridiculous. And and it's, uh, you know, probably based on a patriarchal bias of, excusing men cheating essentially (laughs) and um anyway so we need wisdom and if we're going to heal and we're going to get our needs met um even knowing how to interpret research really and that's what i try to do in this podcast I, i read a lot of science i read a lot of research but it takes someone who's been around the block a few times and who is humble and cares to listen to pull it all together and really understand it, you know, to not be led astray. Um, so in the replication crisis in psychology for me uh, is kind of interesting, but uh, honestly, it doesn't really affect me or, or what I teach. All right, next email from anonymous listener. She says, how do you ask for sexual needs with a partner who was defensive in these conversations? My boyfriend and I have been together for a long time and the sex we have is great, but I am not able to finish. When I ask him if he could spend more time with foreplay until I get there, he was hurt and escalated because he thought I was saying that I don't think he is good in bed and that his, quote, penis doesn't work for me, unquote. He says this was never an issue with his previous partners, and I feel that he is just hurt. He did he did start to do the things I asked after the fight, but not to the point I needed, and we still never resolved the conversation. How do we re-enter this conversation about setting him off without setting him off or hurting him again in an email. Yeah. So what it sounds to me like an anonymous listener is that you would like to finish. Uh, you like your relationship with him. Uh, you like your having sex with him. You know, it's enjoyable even though you don't finish, but 
you'd like to finish and you'd like to you know, take your sexual experiences to the next level. And you would like to be able to have a conversation about these kinds of things. And you brought it up with him about like, hey, you know, more time with foreplay. And he got upset. And uh, uh, so there's there's a number of factors. I don't know if they're present in your relationship, but they're really common factors in heterosexual relationships that I've worked with sexually. In that men are taught that they're supposed to be sexual gods that can please women uh, innately without having to talk with them. So there's that. And and so as a man, as a heterosexual man, when you have a woman who is asking for things, there's this implication that you're, you're inadequate and that is um, antithetical to the masculine ideal. It, it, for example, if, I don't know, what's something that you get feedback around? <laughs> like, hey, uh, at work, if you could turn things in a little earlier, it'd be nice. Uh, that's not going to challenge your masculinity, perhaps you know, per se. But to but to say to a man in bed, you're not the you're not as good as I want you to be. You know, it. I, I you're good, but you're not you're not as good as I as I was hoping you would be. That is just a huge blow to the fragile male ego. Now, men aren't born with fragile egos. That fragile egos. They're created because of the notions that men are taught about sexuality. The other thing, the other notion that he might be operating from is that, uh, you know, uh, P and V sex is sufficient for women to finish. And the percentage is, I don't know, something like 30% of women can finish that way. Uh, you know, it depends on how you're doing it and blah, blah, blah. But so it's not unusual to need non-P and V sex to finish, to orgasm. And uh, he might be operating from that myth, which is prevalent, particularly among men, because, uh, you know, it's it's convenient for men to believe that. Plus, if you watch a lot of porn, uh, particular kinds of porn, it's going to mess with your head in that way. So there's that. Um, he's also operating from this assumption that his previous partners were satisfied with him, which aren't necessarily isn't necessarily true. It's possible that they just said they were satisfied with him. <laughs> it's also possible that they were satisfied with him. You know, he might have just had a, a few partners who were um, totally fine with P and V only sex. So there's that. Um, there's also a lot of sex shame in our society. And so a lot of people get real defensive and real uncomfortable when sexual topics get brought up. And so there's there's a lot of things working against you. But, you're, you know, you're doing... You're doing good work. You're bringing it up. You're, you're asserting yourself. You're saying, hey, let's let's do this. And you're going, whoa, like he didn't react well to that. So obviously going to a therapist to talk about this, you know, couples therapist would be great. Uh, you can also just bring it up with him and just be like, hey, I you know, noticed you got a little defensive last time. Um, you know, I really like having sex with you, but there's just a couple of things I'd like to tweak just to make it a little bit better. Is, that, is it okay if we talk about that? You know, I would talk about talking about it. I'd say, how would you like to talk about it? Because unless he's some kind of, complete a-hole he will hopefully say well yeah i want you to be able to talk about it i want you to be able to bring stuff up and in all likelihood he has things he'd like to change about what you do you know so uh because the the thing about the notion that's given to us by society and by movies and rom-coms and stuff is that when you have sex you just 
in, innately know what the other person wants to do. And there is a fair amount of nonverbal um, cues as to what is working for the other person that you sort of learn over time and, and you adjust given those cues. But but it's really rare, particularly longer-term relationships, that uh, sexual satisfaction is optimized by not talking about it. <laughs> so uh, I would just say, how would you like to talk about it? And and I, I, I might I might not even bring up his previous defensiveness. I might just, because that might make him more defensive. Just be like, hey, do you want the kind of relationship where we talk openly about our sexual lives? Or would you rather just us not talk about it? You know, because I hope he would say, yeah, if we, you know, and then you talk about the premises and then maybe later on you just say, hey, I'd like this and I don't want you to get upset. And it doesn't mean that I don't love you. It doesn't mean you're not a man. It doesn't mean you're not good in bed because you are, but. I just, I'm trying to improve things. So um, now having said all that, you could do everything perfect and he could still be an a-hole and defensive and he might, have, he might even have traumas around this. Who knows? And you know, that's where therapy comes in. All right. This next email is from Sabrina. She says, I was wondering if a judge has to be in therapy in order to become differentiated enough to make the cleanest judgments possible. Is psychological health important and studying things like that? Um, so end of email. Yeah. So Sabrina's like, hey, in, you know, a court, a judge, do they have to be in therapy? Because it seems like it would help for them to resolve their own biases and their own traumas and to understand their, uh, you know, what how oppression works and internalized racism and that kind of. So uh, does a judge need those kinds of things? And the answer is no. Judges, as far as I know, are not required to go to therapy. In fact, there might even be frowning upon therapy because it's like, well, if a judge is in therapy, that, that might mean they're crazy. And so, because, you know, I don't know if it's still true, but it was in the past where pilots, airline pilots, if they were found to be seeking psychological help, they would get um, fired or grounded because there was this assumption that there was something wrong with them and they shouldn't be flying airplanes. And so what it would lead to is a lot of impaired pilots who were prevented from getting help and then bad things would happen. So judges, at the very least, uh, and I have friends who are judges who um, are suffering a great deal. Uh, There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of uh, pressure put on them. And there's not a lot of training. There's not a lot of support. There's, There's not a lot of... Um, supervision or oversight or guidance for for judges. There can be, but uh, in my experience, judges are often, you know, because these are government employees. It's not like the government treats their employees very well. And so there's this expectation that, you know, you should just know what you're supposed to do and, and, and you should just, and we all understand that even research shows that judges are extremely biased, you know, one judge is this way, another judge is that way, or judges in this town are this way, and judges in another town or another way. And so it would be nice if they not only went to therapy, but also understood their biases and, and that kind of thing. And, there, you know, there are trainings around that, and there's certainly a lot of discourse that judges can participate in. But in my experience, um, a lot more needs to be done. And uh, I could go on and on about the court system and how we basically it's basically a church court courts are basically like a like a temple with a priest up high in a robe and a big seal instead of a you know a Christian cross we have a big state seal behind them and 
everything. You have to stand when they walk in, and there's all these procedures, and everyone kisses the judge's butt, and and you know it it probably is fine, but there's this um, notion that judges are infallible when, of course, they're just a human being. <laughs> they're just another human. There there's nothing different about them. They have some training, and they they're supposed to try to do the right thing, but they often don't. You know, I, at the beginning of my career, I spent a fair amount of time in court, maybe once a week, maybe more often. And I experienced a lot of different judges. And I can tell you that some judges are good and some judges are terrible. And even the terrible judges would do good things sometimes. And some of the good judges would do terrible things. Uh, I mean, the, the stuff that happens in courts, you, you just wouldn't, um, you would, and the, the, and this is what I tell my people going through divorces, you know, they're like, oh, I've got to get into a custody battle and we're getting lawyers and all that stuff. And I'm like, I will tell them, if you take this to court and you don't work, you know, if you don't work together with your former partner to get an agreement, if you don't make compromises and this ends up going to court, you will lose. Everyone loses when you go to court because there's just no way to win in court usually. And also judges say they decide on some extremely, I saw some weird shit that judges would do. And I'd just be like, huh? Um, and I've told this story before, but I'll say it again because it's relevant to this conversation, is that early in my career, I was in court and I was I was a neutral party. I wasn't with the plaintiff or the defendant. It was a family that was a client of mine. And someone raised their hand, you know, either the kids or the parents and said, um, you know, and this family therapist in the back, you know, uh, over here, uh, he isn't he isn't a real family therapist because he's meeting sometimes individually with the kids. And I thought the judge would say, well, that's kind of irrelevant or, um, you know, what do I know about family therapy? That's not what the judge said. What the judge said, I don't know precisely in verbatim, but the, the judge laid into me and started lecturing me about what a terrible family therapist I was because I was meeting individually with the kids sometimes. At the time, not only was I a licensed marriage and family therapist, not only was I a professor in family therapy, but the standard of care within family therapy is you absolutely, as an option, can meet alone with the kids or the parents or whoever you want. You can have any configuration you want. Uh, you know, Murray Bowen, for example, was is one of our founders in family therapy, and he regularly met alone with the most differentiated person in the family doing family therapy. So it's, you know, it's a, it's in the standard of care. It's fine. And why would it be weird? But I think the judge was anxious. You know, it was a very tense court hearing. And I think the judge was getting increasingly undifferentiated and, and tense and, and scared about what was happening in the room. And, and I just became this really easy scapegoat that the judge just laid into. And I, I remember just sitting there going like, oh my God, this judge is an idiot. And what gives you the right in my head? I'm like, judge, what gives you the right to think that you know any, you clearly know nothing about family therapy and you're lecturing me. And I just remember thinking this person is used to having complete power in this room. And since I was a neutral party, I I didn't care what the judge did either. I wasn't on the defendant side or the plaintiff side. So I, I was just there to support and to provide some information. And I don't know, I don't remember what I said, but I didn't, 
I didn't kowtow to the judge the way everyone else does in that room. Like everyone kisses the judge's ass in these, you know, the, obviously the lawyers are kissing the ass, the plaintiff and the defendant are kissing that, the, the, the bailiff, the clerks, everyone is just like in full reverence. And I'm, and I'm not. And, and so I just remember being like, I said something along the lines, well, judge, um, respectfully, uh, as a professor of family therapy, I, I disagree with your premise. <laughs> something like, in that, a family therapist can't meet individually with people in the family. It's something that we regularly do. And as a professor of family therapy, I'm here to tell you that that's normal. It's, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And, um, and I remember the judge just being just kind of moving on to something else, but, um, yeah. So now can some judges do great things? Absolutely. You know, it happens all the time. Can, are, but are some judges, regular humans with flaws and are in desperate need of education and therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This next email is from anonymous listener. She says, what does it mean as a female when you have dreams about having sex with your father? Because this is something that I've experienced and a female. Yeah. So uh, in very brief, what I'll say is that when you have dreams about having sex with your father or sex with a family member, in all likelihood does not mean you want to have sex with that person. We all understand that dreams are pretty random. Uh, there's a lot of associations. There's a lot of things that happen in our brain that motivate the particular storylines of our dreams that have nothing to do with our true motivations. So don't be afraid of it. And the thing you want to ask yourself about any dream is, well, what, what might this mean? You know, if I were to break it down on its emotional level, what does this mean? Does this mean I want to connect with my dad more? Does it mean that I feel like my partner is kind of fatherly over me right now? Does it mean that I just randomly thought about sex and then two minutes later, you know, during the day I was watching porn and then, and then my dad called and, and so my brain decided to merge those two things together, the porn and the phone call with my dad. Is that what the, was that what my brain's doing right? You know, it, it just, you know, that's what I do with clients. The other thing to think about is that you understand that if you dream about having sex with your dad, it, it's not actually your dad in your dream. Your dad didn't enter your dream. You created a figure called your dad. So you are both you in the dream and you are your dad. So another way to think about your dreams is you are in control of everyone. You're the puppet master of everything. The setting, the people, every element, you are the writer, you're the screenwriter and the director, and you're all the actors. But you identify with only one person, which is the you figure. But you're everyone in the dream. So you, in, while you're having sex with your dad in your dream, you are you, but you are also your dad. So another way to think about it is what part of you is being represented by your dad having sex with you? Because you are having sex with you in your dream. You are you and you are your dad. <laughs> so... I find that's useful to remember because, uh, one, I think it helps with analysis, and two, it helps to um, not confuse dreams with reality because I find that some people, after they have a dream, they actually will get upset at someone and be like, I had a dream about you and you were mean to me and I'm now I'm mad at you. And I'm like, you realize like I didn't enter your dream. <laughs> you, you created a an actor that had my face, 
but that you were the puppet master of me in your own dream. So whatever you're upset about, about the me figure in your dream, you should really be upset at yourself because you did that to you in your dream. You are the writer, the director, and all the actors in your dreams. So don't blame me. <laughs> all right, rapid fire. Listener Silver from Georgia says, what is your viewpoint on kinning? Uh, so uh, there's a longer email here, but uh, I don't know that much about kinning. If you don't know what kinning is, it's basically about people who will uh, pretend that they are or believe that they are a fictional character. It'd be like if I dressed up like Luke Skywalker and started telling people to call me Luke and talked as if, you know, it's like, well, you know, back on Tatooine and, and I took this play to this to this whole other level, you know. And there's various different levels of kinning. Some people will kin behind closed doors. Some people will kin with other kinners. Some people will kin in public. Some people will kin 24-7. So, you know, there's very different levels of it. So my viewpoint on kinning is that, and I don't know the research, but uh, I think that society tends to get scared of things like this unnecessarily. The other thing I say is that I think probably most people who are kinning are fine and there's nothing pathological about it, meaning it doesn't harm anyone. I think that there's probably a small percentage of people who are kinning in ways that are harmful to themselves and others. And that there are probably some people who are kinning who are schizophrenic or delusional in some way and actually just believe that they are Luke Skywalker and have a hard time differentiating between reality and fiction. Um, some people might be kinning because of traumas that they've been through. That doesn't mean it's bad, but it you know indicates a need for uh, healing for the, for those individuals. You know, because if you were treated horribly uh, and powerless, you feel powerless. It might feel better to kin as pretend that you are someone who does have power. It can be you know obviously there's sexual fetishes in there. I, I'm I'm guessing that's not the the dominant reason why people will kin. Um, but overall, uh, I think it's a form of play. You know, when we were kids, we all hopefully pretended a lot. I, I pretended all, all the time, you know, from, I don't know, two till eight. It's like that's all I wanted to do was pretend. I wanted to play. I was an, an army soldier or I was Luke Skywalker or I was, you know, um, a police officer or something. You know, I, I you just pretend and you, you play games and. And it's fun, and it's it's just a wonderful, especially when you're playing with other people. And I think that as adults, we get away from that, and we suffer. And I think a lot of the kinning people are reconnecting with a very satisfying emotionally and social experience, experience called pretending. That's you know, it's basically what they're doing. All right, this next email from anonymous listener. He writes. I was wondering if you could do an episode on maladaptive daydreaming because I have it. I grew up in a loving but chaotic family and felt alone often. I began daydreaming when I was nine to cope with the profound sadness and neglect I was feeling back then. I'm now in my mid-twenties and my daydreams have morphed into an extremely addictive coping mechanism I cannot manage. I'm currently seeking therapeutic help, but it's been a difficult process because maladaptive daydreaming is recently is a recently discovered condition and there's no official treatment protocols yet in a email. Yeah. So 
Well, you're describing it really well, and, and you're aware of it. So, you know, I think you understand the path before you. So what you're telling, what I hear you saying is that early in life you were being mistreated and you were very alone, and the way you coped was you would daydream. And it became a, a, a safety place for you to go to. And you really depended on it, and you really needed it back then to escape your circumstances. But as an adult... You compulsively daydream now, and it interferes with your life, with jobs or conversations or social life or something. And, it, it, you know, you could consider it like another form of dissociation, right? And so the key is is that you don't beat yourself up for daydreaming, but that you recover from your traumas so you don't, you don't need to daydream anymore. All right, this next email is from patron Lauren from Olympia. Olympia, just south of Seattle. Patron Lauren uh, asks, what is happening when differentiation actually inflames the system and the other people get very mad and aggressive to the person being differentiated? End of question. Yeah, so I'll often talk about the benefits of differentiation and how it will help a system when you become more differentiated. It can help a system to be more mature, to be more calm, to be more thoughtful, to be more caring. Because as you change, the system changes. But it can actually create the opposite thing, which is because you're, particularly if you're stepping out of your role and you're not playing along with typical triangulations, then the system has what we call negative feedback mechanisms in place to push the system back into equilibrium. The way to think about it is that uh, on a scale from one to 10, let's say you have a family that is functioning at a three and 10 is optimal and one is the worst ever. So this family's not doing very well. But it's not horrible. When you have a family that's operating at a three and you start to change, the system doesn't, un- doesn't know what's happening. It just knows that change is happening. And so families operating at a three, when change starts to happen, they worry they're going to go to a two or a one. And, and every family is like this. Whenever you introduce change to a system, the system immediately reacts to preserve what they have because they're afraid of losing what they have, even if even if it's not very much, but it's like, you know, we have some contact, we have some love, we have some support. And if we change, we might have to lose all of that. And that's really scary to the system. It's largely an unconscious process in the system. So when you, even if you're being differentiated and you're, and you're being kind and and you're being functional, it can be very threatening to a system and, and it'll react against that. And one of the ways to react against that is to be, you know, inflammatory and to, try to push you back into your old triangulating ways. So the trick is to go to family therapy. uh, And in family therapy, what we do is we try to explain this to families and we hold course. We, you know, stay the course, meaning that as you become differentiated, the system will initially react against it, but you just keep at it because eventually the system will hopefully emerge on the other side with a new set of rules and at a higher functioning um, number, you know, they go from a three to a five or something. But the, the way to think about it is that, you know, equilibriums are good and homeostasis staying the same. There's, there's a lot of benefits to staying the same because if, if you change from day to day, it's a lot of chaos. And so systems uh, for good reasons, like equilibriums they like to they like to say okay you do this you do that this is how we do things and and let's just kind of keep it at that because if you're reinventing the rules every day it's very it's very scary there's 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 a lot to do every day so 
um, equilibrium, equilibriums are good. So when an equilibrium asserts itself and tries to bring you back to equilibrium, you just say, well, you know, I, I understand why the system's doing that to me, but, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go along with it. I'm going to, I'm going to keep at it. And I might even say to people, Hey, I know that it might, I might, I'm acting differently lately, but my hope is, is that we could have even better relations. You know, sometimes it's better to be explicit about it. If you, so you might be noticing that I'm doing X, Y, and Z lately. And I'm not doing that because when you become differentiated, it can actually be interpreted as you're distancing yourself because you're not doing your typical triangulation activities. And so they might actually have conscious logical reasons to believe that you're actually being mean and that you're actually rejecting them. And so you might have to be explicit. And that's what I do in family therapy all the time. It's like I, I, we would be very explicit about where they're at and where we want them to be and how we're going to get there and how there's going to be some some fear and some leaps of faith involved in that. All right, this next email is, I don't know who it's from, but someone sent me this this uh, Instagram post that had to do with psychology and they, they wanted to know my thoughts. So I thought I'd evaluate it real quickly here. So it's um this title that says, don't let your feelings run your life. It's not politically correct to say this, but letting your feelings run your life is a terrible idea. Feelings are not facts. They are often completely irrational. Your feelings are not more important than anyone else's. It's no one else's job to accommodate your feelings don't squash them down, but don't put them on a pedestal. So that's the Instagram post. And, you know, I, I don't know what people exactly mean by this, because certainly there's some truth in there. But I find this to be a manifestation of a cultural aspect in Western culture, particularly what I know to be in the American culture, of the patriarchal ideal of non-emotionality and of your emotion, you know, the classic example of this is when someone cries, often people say, don't cry. You know, someone will be, you know, tearing up a little bit and there's, there's a very frequent response of stop crying or rejection or something. And I'm always just boggled by that. It's like, what's it to you that someone's crying? It's like, let it go. Someone's crying. Like, it's fine. <laughs> they're crying. It's, it's, a, they're sad. Um, do you think that stopping them from crying will stop the emotion? No, you know, water is coming out of their eyes. It's a natural human thing. Like, but it's this patriarchal idea of emotions are feminine and weak and terrible, and we need to constantly be capitalistic machines that produce for the economy, and and crying is going to get in the way of that. And so, uh, this idea of like, you know, don't this post, don't let feelings run your life. Feelings are not facts. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, getting back to differentiation, if, if you're talking about being differentiated, then great. If you're talking about, hey, you might want to reflect on your feelings a little bit more, um, then I absolutely can get behind that. But, um, you know, this, this sentiment of your feelings are not more important than anyone else's. You know, you just got to wonder, like, where does that statement come from? You know, I, I just know that there's a, a group of people in the world who are just sort of anti-feelings, you know, and they they have this notion of just like everyone just, you know, talking about, you know, particularly this first sentence here, it's not politically correct to say this, but, you know, anytime you start, a, I know it's not politically correct to say this, but it's like, uh-oh, where's this headed? So, you know, I, 
I don't know exactly what this Instagram post is saying, but I, I, I can tell you I'm not a fan. All right, this next email from Upper Tier Patron Megan from Yelm. Good old Yelm here in Washington State. Why might someone prefer to hang out with people much younger or older than themselves? I was having a chat with my good friend who is in his 50s, and I'm in my 30s, and we get along great. It's actually one of the most honest and secure friendships I've had in a long time, and he's a wonderful person. While I obviously don't find an issue with it, I was just curious as to why someone might have trouble relating to people in their own age groups. End of email. Yeah, I, you know, I, I yammer about this all the time. Um, who cares that he's in his 50s and you're in your 30s? Who cares that you're different genders? You know, it's, we have this extremely traditional, ridiculous notion of what friendships are supposed to look like and... I'm, I'm sure it's based on the patriarchy or some notion of like ownership of women. And I don't know. It, it's, it's just silly. Um, you're in, you're in your thirties and you have a friend in, in his fifties that you get along with really well. And you find, it sounds like that you get along with people who are older than you. It's fine. Now it might, it be related to some traumas of yours could be, might you be acting out something, you know, could be, but as long as there's nothing harmful about this, it's fine. It'd be the same way of just like, I love hanging out with French people, or I like East coast people, or I like, um, I'm a woman and I like to have women friends, or I like people who are interested in fishing. Like just, you know, you're okay with it, Megan. You're like, I'm okay with it, but I'm guessing you're worried about, people judging you because of this, you know, there's something pathological with you. Like I said, might there be something to look at there? You know, maybe, but on the surface, there's, there's not, there's not an alarm. All right. This next email is from anonymous upper tier patron from California. She writes, I am currently dealing with the most severe depression I have ever been through. And my partner of four years is not handling it well at all. He takes it personal and is very needy in general for physical affection. And right now I can't give it to him, which makes him sad. And then I feel guilty. He also has developed major trust and jealousy issues. It's hard to spend all my time with just my partner who looks at me like a sick puppy. I'm getting help for my depression and just started antidepressants. But I worry that this has caused me to detach from my partner emotionally for good. At the same time, I'm in no place to go through a tough breakup. I am kind of at a loss, so any wisdom or advice would be greatly appreciated. End of email. Yeah, well, I'm sorry you're going through a deep depression. That is awful. Depression is awful, but severe depression is rough. I mean, it grinds your life to a halt. Everything looks different. It's hard to, you know, sleep or you sleep too much or, you know, there's just so, it just, your brain is in a completely different state. It's awful. So I'm... You know, I'm with you. I'm thinking about you. I hope you're doing okay. You're starting antidepressants. You're getting help for your depression, which is great. Um, sounds like there might be a cyclical nature to this, so maybe there's maybe you'll cycle out of it, or who knows. But but your question is, you know, my partner who I thought was great is not handling it well, and he's taking it personally, and he's you know really needy, and he you know will express jealousy or hurt all the time. And I just don't have the energy. Well, I would bring him into therapy. When I work with depressed individuals, I almost always bring in their, their significant others and their family members because people generally don't understand what depression is. And they, 
they need to understand it. They also need to be a good support person. And depressed people are rough to be involved with. If your partner is depressed, it's it's rough. So these people need support as well, and they need to have other people in their lives. You know, your your partner cannot only depend on you. He needs other people that he can depend on because it, while you're severely depressed, you you are not going to be a reliable source of emotional support for him. So uh, therapy, support, understanding, education, takes a village, that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing you're saying here is that, uh, you, you know, you're worried about breaking up. So who knows, but I wouldn't be surprised if as you pull out of the depression, your viewpoint about him will change a lot. Now, it might not, but I, when I work with people who are severely depressed, it's very frequent that they will feel extremely dissatisfied with their partner. And then they pull out of the depression and they're like, oh, my partner's not so bad. So, you know, keep that in mind. It's hard to know, of course, if you if you want to break up with them, of course, do it. But there's a possibility that, you know, because when you're depressed, everything looks different. And especially if he's burdening you with his needs, you know, it's just, and you're feeling guilty. It just can really ruin things. Um, so uh, it's possible that things will change for you after you pull out of the depression. Uh, it's just something to keep in mind. But I, I don't know, you know, do what you feel is right for yourself. All right, this next email is from up to your patron Tiki from Seattle. They write, in your deep dive on avoidant personality disorder, you very briefly mentioned that their spouses tend to often feel rejected, but you didn't speak about the experience of children of those with avoidant personality disorder. I have several clients and friends whom I believe have a parent with avoidant personality disorder based on the information they have shared with me. Is it possible that you can shed some light on that experience since they need compassion too? End of email. Yeah, absolutely. Well, parents with avoidant personality disorder can be quite different from each other. So you can have a parent with avoidant personality, you know, well, let me speak from the avoidant personality disorders uh, side of things. So if you have avoidant personality disorder, you have a deep uh, schema that there's something wrong with you and that everyone knows it, and your solution is to avoid. And so for you to have kids means that you ventured into dating. You ventured into, well, I guess some people might just do in vitro or something, but in all likelihood, if you're a parent with avoidant personality disorder, you uh, um, you know have ventured into relationships with people, and you're sort of venturing into a relationship with a child. So um, for people with avoidant personality disorder who have kids, it's possible that with their own kids, they've overcome their avoidant issues such that they can raise their children well enough. You know, if you believe that everyone knows there's something wrong with you, you might kind of have a an exception for your own children. And because it, if you're, in other words, you, your uh, distortion might apply to everyone except for your children, if that makes sense. And I've seen this happen before where someone suffers from borderline, for example, and everyone in their life, particularly romantic partners, they see as betraying um, distortedly. But their own kids, they don't see that way. And so some people with avoidant personality disorder will be, you know, okay, good enough as a parent. But there are others who are 
going to have some issues where they will, uh, in the same way that you can make a partner feel very... So let me back up. So when you have the deep avoidant personality disorder distortion that there's something wrong with you and that everyone knows it, you feel like you want to avoid relationships because you don't want to burden other people with how stupid or dumb or wrong you are. You just want to, you just feel like, look, it's just better if I just don't interface with other people because I'm such a burden to other people. I'm such a bother and it's just easier to just be by myself. And some people will be really focused on how they look or what they talk like or what they say or how nervous they look or something awkwardness is focused on and so with a partner when you have avoidant personality disorder you can make your partner feel very rejected because the avoidant personality disorder person is often pulling away you know that's the whole avoidant part of that and if you're in a relationship with someone with avoidant personality disorder you just you just get this sense like of rejection, you just get the sense like, "Oh, you don't love me." When in fact, the avoidant personality disorder person is so focused on their own perceived bad qualities that they they don't really even have time to love you. And and you can that applies to children as well. So if you suffer from avoidant personality disorder, there's a chance that you will pull away from your own children because you believe that your flaws are a burden to them, and you're you know hyper focused and obsessive about how how wrong you are in various different ways and you don't have time to notice your children's emotional needs and that will absolutely create a lot of problems with attunement and attachment all right well i have now answered all the upper tier patron emails so let's call that an episode of the podcast next time i will start with the Regular patron emails, of which there are many, many more. (laughs) How many pages? 38 pages of emails. So tune in next time when I continue with reading emails from patrons. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 